Welcome back to Rationalist, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your co-host, Morgan Wack, and I'm here with the virile Eddie Matthews. <laughs> Wild and crazy. <laughs> that's, that's, that's our tagline, right? On yep. iTunes? Wild and crazy. <laughs> what are uh, we talking about today, Eddie? Well, we're going to talk about the most successful political party of the last, you know, two and a quarter centuries, arguably. And your favorite Ob- party, right? Obviously, arguably. Uh, yeah, my favorite party. Go, uh, I'm t- I bleed Tory Red. As a, as a hint, he has a Thatcher tattoo on his left bum. So Yeah, that's, uh... and a Boris tattoo on my right. <laughs> Fresh ink. Fresh ink. <laughs> This is based on an Economist article, which is pretty short, and I recommend you read it if you have a computer near you because it's it's pretty entertaining, and it really is probably two pages long. So we're going to fill it in with some just some outside opinions and things. But it's called "Britain's Tories Are the World's Most Successful Party." Here's why, and it's from December twenty first, twenty nineteen. So it. here's why. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like Eddie said, the Tories are have basically been around since democracy was essentially brought into the British culture and British governance. And they've been incredibly successful at staving off at various times uh, the Liberals and Labour. And they are currently in power and seem like they will be in power for the extended future. And so this article digs into how a party like that could possibly extend their success for such a long period of time over so many different political periods and social periods with so much social anxiety and during branch bridging the two world wars the cold war um, and then the post-soviet union period into today um yeah I and mean, what struck you most about this article um i think that i didn't necessarily realize the extent to which their success had been so constant for 200 years Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. um i thought that there were more just like blips of really strong times and then and then the it would just undulate you know like it normally does with conservative and liberal parties but it really sounds like there was more of a consistency here that that was obviously attributable attributable to things other than just people's kind of natural proclivity towards conservatism or liberalism and how those change and, you know, the ebb and flow of that. Um, I think that, yeah, I think the thing that struck me about it is how um, I hadn't necessarily thought about until it touched on like part of their, uh, the reason for them being so successful is that they're really good prognosticators of like what they're on the tipping point of, or like what mm-hmm. is about to change, like what sea change is happening next. Which is interesting because that's not what you associate with the conservative party in pretty much any country, right? Right. Um, yeah, and you don't think of conservatives also as being the change party usually. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. The Tories were that for Brexit, right? They were the like they made the liberals look 
conservative with their remain, you know, kind of keep the status quo message. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one because it's really like change back to the way things were. <laughs> so like, right. it can kind of be presented <laughs> yeah. as a message of like forward thinking when really it's like, let's go back to a different time, which is in a sense a type of change um, to a very conservative type of change. Uh, so you here the you want me to give a rundown of the three basic like ideas that the author lists as to why he believes the or she it doesn't have an author's name so how dare believe, you <laughs> why they believe that the uh, the conservatives have been so successful oh please do oh thank you thank you uh, so the first one that we kind of talked about is quick to dump people principles uh, so I'd say call that the adaptive aspect of conservative ideology in the Tory party. Second is patriotism, which I we can talk about is probably the most adaptive and vague version of an ideology, uh, which I think is really helpful for the Tories. And the third is, correct me if I mispronounce this, uh, you're the scholar here, jollity? Jollity? Is that... It's jollity. How dare <laughs> you? <Damn it. laughs> I apologize. I apologize. Um, which can best be summed up as the party of champagne, women, and bridge, which is how it was described in, in the 20th century. Which that was my senior think, quote. <laughs> I knew it. I knew that sounded familiar. <laughs> <laughs> you always have been a big fan of bridge. <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Mr. Spenderman was like, all right, Eddie, we need a quote. I was like, champagne, women, uh, bridge? Solitaire? Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Let's make this more applicable. Yeah. I see. Um, I do think the first two tie together um, and is some ways a difference between the Conservative Party in the United States and the Conservative Party in the UK, which is the idea that both the principles, the people, and the patriotism of the Tories are all not the bedrock of the party. They can adapt all of these things in a way that makes them best suited to win the next next election. They're always forward thinking and always trying to save seats rather than trying to save principled ideological stances. And it's way easier to truncate and summarize that in a line or two. Yeah. You know, if it's like being British is we like our toast. We like our (laughs) milk from British cows. That about sums it up. <laughs> but that kind of like that essentialist version of yeah. America, the analog would be we like barbecues, we like our apple pie, we like baseball, we like our American flags, we like our country music, you know, like it's yeah. it's this it's the stereotypical stuff that and that plays to the uh, I think like um, uh just how resilient that and adaptable like you're like you're saying that can be to each new like uh generation. they don't have to rethink their identity every you know election yeah i mean i think this is why you can see more of the tories in the donald trump presidency than you can in a lot of other conservative presidencies is essentially what donald trump stands for is is basically whatever is going to win I don't think he really has any popular stance on any particular. Yeah, this is essentially populism, right? His he completely reversed the entire Republican Party's like fifty-year 
like train to drive home neoliberal principles, right? He's he's essentially an economic populist and supports kind of restricted trade and and tariffs, um, which has always been the bane of the Republican Party. Um, right. Whereas the Tories, because the Republicans have, traditionally are known to be the free market, deregulated, yeah, exactly, capitalist. And I think that they saw an opportunity to kind of tap into some of the disenfranchisement or di- disenchantment with um, those exact principles and weren't afraid to kind of promote them, even if they thought that it would be worse for the economy as a whole. And this is something that the Tories have been good at for a very long time. I think that um, if I were to... You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think if we got... My favorite two martini lunch together with Mitch McConnell and Boris Johnson and ask them, what is your party about? And they had one sentence to answer it. I think Mm. they would say it's about winning elections. Like that's I the feel point like, you know, of a party. They would equivocate if the, you could make them tell the truth. I think that. Well, would, uh, yeah, I mean, that's I in yeah. their martini was a truth serum. Fair enough. I guess I should have realized the far fetchedness when you <laughs> in the first place. But <laughs> yeah, right now they're not taking my calls. I, yes, exactly. Yeah, they're they're mad at us for our last couple of podcasts, but uh, we'll get them back on the hook. Don't worry. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you're exactly right. That is that essentially in all economic models when politicians and parties are kind of essentialized and their base instincts are used to model formal models, what is always taken as their goal is to remain in power. And I think that has played out more and more in recent times than previously when there were, I mean, maybe it's just, I don't know, what do you think? Do you, do you think we just, maybe we have a bias towards remembering the politicians that were principled and took a stand rather than the thousands of political parties and politicians that were more, you know, equivocating? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I think naturally... Also, I think history has a lot to do with that, where, like, if you look at Reagan's popularity, um, you know, according to, like, 538, when, I, when I've looked at it, it fluctuates way more than I thought it did. Like, he was mm. deeply unpopular at times. Um, but now, kind of with the lens of history he's generally regarded as a great president, whether, you know, and obviously that depends on who you talk to. But I think a lot of times um, these kind of realizations are made after the fact, after we get to see how their policies did 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 Mm -hmm. years down the road. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I think it's, I think also, like, we just naturally forget the equivocators because they don't stand for anything, so they're not worth remembering. And they don't change the status quo, right? So why would we need to remember? It's just kind of never in flux. Right. I'm talking to you, President Garfield. (laughs) Yeah, that guy's the worst. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the second one, so this is where I'm going to bring up my my controversial point for the the day here. Uh Uh-oh. I know. We're known for pushing the boundaries here at Rationalish. Yeah. Do you think... So basically the idea of patriotism, which is the second point of this article, is essentially the idea that you can kind of promote this underlying us-versus-them narrative without having to actually attach it to any policies. And do you think that 
the way democracy is set up with with one person one vote in most cases that there is any way of producing an effective identity of that is based on inclusivity so my point here is with the EU at large so the EU's one of their main problems has been trying to create a you know a cross national european identity and you know this is a very you know valiant attempt to produce some sort of cohesion across europe but it also is difficult in my opinion because they've made led by angela merkel in a very you know a very forward thinking attempt to make the european union be all about inclusivity and western values and freedom and things you associate with democracy but i think what what is not taken into into account is that kind of the underlying need to create an identity based around who you're not rather than who you are makes it very tough to construct an identity that's based on everyone being allowed into your group. Yeah. I mean, I think this is why uh, in America liberals lose elections because they think of the times that they do lose an election is that they think of to win the election, if we just build a big enough coalition of all these individual little subgroups with a, with a vague kind of, you know, unite and conquer type message that that will be sufficient. And then they just get blown out of the water by somebody with a compelling narrative like Trump had in 2016 or, um, you know, I'm sure, well, I mean, Reagan, obviously, uh as well with um all of his anti-communism um rhetoric so basically like i think that there's kind of a the liberals like we do a disservice to ourselves by thinking of unity just as some weird like concatenation of small groups that if we just you know put enough of these little together we can we can win but we don't actually have to <laughs> you know tell anybody that they're wrong or act or tell anybody that they're right for that stand matter. for anything yeah. yeah i mean i think this is the problem i so this is in a recent foreign affairs article francis fukuyama was responding to stacy abrams about identity politics and she was making the is that the end of history politics. guy yeah yeah He's he's very popular still, which is amazing. History's still going, buddy. A, he's pretty much just known for a gaffe, but uh, he is very well respected in political science circles. Uh, but he he had a really funny line. He was essentially taking um, Abrams to task for saying that identity politics were positive for America, and his point was essentially that identity politics is great for elections and electoral politics, but it's terrible for democracy. And I think he's completely correct in that regard. I think that identity politics win elections. Being able to put together groups of people that see, that hate another group more than they dislike other groups within themselves is a way to win elections, but it's a terrible, terrible way to create a national identity and a national purpose, um, at least in terms of kind of cohesive shared values um, as a whole. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I that, think that is a challenge that I think we're grappling with all around the world and democracies everywhere that we haven't exactly solved. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, 
I can't stand identity politics and I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to do when I come across something that I perceive as identity politics, but, but it's being coded as the humane approach that I should have toward, uh, you know, whatever topic or group or whatever. And I have a hard time with that because you can't even broach talking about the issue without just seeming retrograde to the person that you may come to disagree with. And I think that what's disheartening to me about where I guess like the liberal social issues are right now on our side of the fence is that it's just like purity tests and I can't stand that because it doesn't allow for critical thinking. I just want to say one more quick thing about what you can see in the UK, just because we got a little off track in the US case, but you can see these policies with the conservative party, the Tories uh, recent commitment to the train H2M, HM2 and the nationalization of Northern rail and also the taxes that they've announced on the rich, which are essentially the exact opposite of conservative, classical conservative <laughs> well, ideologies. Yeah, that's the beauty and of... What, one of the, yeah, exactly. Sorry, you go. Yeah, well, one of their biggest uh, supporters came out and said, if we'd wanted liberal policies, we'd have elected Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> <laughs> that's the beauty of running on a kind of a populist, vague, you know, adaptable platform of those three key points is that you don't have to be tied to anything ideologically. And so Trump can change, you know, free market capitalism and change that the Republican party doesn't support free market capitalism. And like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and he can not only get away with it, but reform the entire party in his image rather than get all these kind of Republicans being like, Oh, when he gets in the oval office, like he'll have a reverence for the space. Like it'll be serious. It'll, it'll calm him down. And it's like, no, he's reformed the white house way more than the white house has ever reformed Mm -hmm. him. Or for anybody in his party, like Mitch McConnell, all down the line, nobody has influenced Trump. Um, and so to think that like that there can be like a party that doesn't really, I mean, have any foreseeable axiomatic values that I can honestly tell. And I'm not trying to just be a liberal, no, Dan- dandy here but <laughs> oh, that's like, better that's on the conservative theme i like it if you if you look at i don't know the tory party well enough but like because hasn't the government grown as well like under every yeah success I mean, boris johnson wrote like what happened to small government separate- too Boris Johnson wrote two separate pieces, one in support of Brexit, one against it, and then just went with the one. He called it an exercise in writing and <laughs> said he truly believed in. I mean, it's, it's not even you don't have you can't really make this stuff up, um, but it works. And that's the challenge that we're faced with today. And it's a big one. Yeah. Um... And so the tough thing is whether you take note and adapt those policies like the American Republican Party has or you believe that eventually it'll swing back towards you know principles principle values underneath and that's tough and and within the republican party as well i mean there are still many republicans that have principle values in economic and social issues and 
that's not what's being represented now, but doesn't mean that can't be the case in the future. Right. I think like it really does seem that, and not just because Mitt Romney voted against the impeachment, but it does Mm -hmm. seem like that dude's a principled person. And I mean, I guess like, even though he was the most ineffectual house speaker, maybe in the history of the country, I think Paul Ryan, I think Paul Ryan is also a principled person. Like those dudes are actual, actually believe the Republican values that they used to stand for. Yeah. Yeah. And so maybe there's enough of that left in the country to have a resurgence, but Trumpism's become so much the face and McConnellism for that matter. Cause McConnell doesn't believe any of that. Like he isn't, I don't think he believes the Paul Ryan at Romney. I think he was furious what Mitt Romney did, you know? Yeah. I'm sure he was. So, um, yeah, it's, it, it'll be really interesting to see in 20 years, like where the soul of the Republican party is at because I mean, they sold it for four years. We'll see if they'll sell another four. Yeah, we'll see. I think it's really important to see what happens with, with Romney and if he's able to kind of retain his popularity in the state and get reelected, maybe that'll encourage some other candidates to realize that you don't always have to fall in line if it's not what you believe in. Well, we'll see. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, for the, and I guess for the UK, like, it's... I don't. I mean, we're gonna have to talk about whether or not Scotland leaves, Northern Ireland rejoins Ireland. It's uh, it's not nearly over. We'll be talking about Brexit and the yeah the I aftermath just, for a long. What long is long. a vote for Brexit? Like, what what is that? It's still so vague and undefined. It's like, <laughs> it's like these people in Silicon Valley right now who are like selling the copyright a concept before it even goes to the product like manufacturing like research and development I guess mm-hmm. there's been some research and development but they like sell it before the thing's actually made and so it was like yeah. Brexit was sold as a concept that was never clarified and then it just happened <laughs> well, that's why it should never have been held in a referendum because yeah. everyone was able to project what Brexit was going to be to them to themselves while everyone had a clear picture of what remain meant. And so yeah. if you had made them focus on what a specific Brexit policy was, it would have had much less support. But it's a different discussion. We can talk yeah. about when Scotland holds its, its next, next referendum, I suppose. Yeah. it's The novel is the space for that, not this piece of legislation. <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. spoken like a true nerd. I know. <laughs> Boris, come to, the, come to the novel writing camp. You think you can convince him to come listen to some Welsh poetry over the weekend? Uh, I doubt he's ever been to Wales. <laughs> You're probably right. <laughs> I'm just, I'm obviously kidding, but I also, I also, I also wouldn't be terribly surprised. If he had. Um, cool. All right. Thanks, listeners. Keep sending us, uh, keep sending us your recommendations, and we'll get on it. We'll get on it. Adios. Until next time. Bye. Peace. Thank you.